back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Ah, good afternoon everyone. Hope everything's going well for you today. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping It Sports with M3. Powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Like I said, hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the fourth day of April here in 2022. No beginning or in the midst, should you say, of what is one of my favorite weeks of the year. You know, we have the final four back on uh, Saturday night. Give you a brief thought or two on that. Thank you very much, Kansas Jayhawks. Uh, The last two nights, I kept myself busy, non-sports-related way, with uh, watching WWE's uh, WrestleMania. Smartest thing they've ever done is switching that to a two-night event. And, of course, we've got the start of baseball season coming up this week, which, you know, a month ago... I sat here and I wasn't sure when baseball was going to get going. I wasn't sure if it was going to be in May, June. Hell, there were some people that even thought there was maybe a chance we wouldn't have a baseball season. But here we sit on this Monday, just three short days away from uh, the baseball season getting started. And no, even though that there's things I'm annoyed about when it comes to the Yankees, things that I would improve on this team and thought that there was ways that they could spend money differently. I'm still excited. I've always made no bones about it. That baseball is my favorite sport. As much as I love the New York Jets, as much as I root for the Brooklyn Nets and the Devils, hopefully they're good someday as well. Baseball was the first sport I was introduced to. Baseball has always been the one I've had, I guess you could say the most passion for, even though I want the Jets more than anything to win a Super Bowl. So even when you have seasons where you look at the Yankees and you say, I don't know about them on paper. I don't know about them as far as championship contention. I still get excited for the start of baseball season. Every fan should be. You know, every fan is excited at the start of a given season because it's a time for optimism. It's a time for positivity. It's a time for, hey, why not us? Why can't this be our year. And optimism is something that Met fans have had for 
the last two years, something that has deprived them for a long time. In some cases, you have Met fans that are cautious optimism because they live with that cynical mindset in the back of their mind that, oh, the, the sky's going to fall on us any minute. We know it. And then there are those who haven't experienced as much pain with the Mets, are happy the fact that they have the richest owner in the sport and think that, oh, let's just buy every player. We're Now we're going to immediately win a championship. Somewhere in between that is you know, fans like my brother who are happy that they have new ownership, but at the same time realize that it doesn't guarantee anything. And listen, the Mets have had on paper a very good offseason. That's why the news of late last week stings even more. Because you had all this positivity, all this optimism. You make quality signings and getting the likes of Marte and Escobar. You go out there, swing hard, and get the big fish in getting uh, Max Scherzer. You make a very smart, under-the-radar trade uh, with the Oakland A's, who seem to be trading about away just about everybody these days, and get Chris Basson, who you were looking at as your number three starter. Yeah, you look at the lineup and you say, you know, there's not exactly an MVP candidate here, per se. I mean, Lindor had a down first season as a Met, but we know that he's uh, very capable of possibly being that guy. Uh, Alonzo's um, a big-time slugger in his own right. But this team you were looking at was built on the, the back of their starting rotation, where with everyone healthy, you figured you'd get very good things out of of them or great things. What a great top two, a good number three, and number fours in uh, Walker and Carrasco who are properly placed in this rotation. You just take whatever you can get from them. But last week was the last piece of news that Met fans needed to hear. First, hearing that Jacob DeGrom was going to be scratched from a spring training start. And then to find out, get sucker punched even worse when it was diagnosed after an MRI with a stress reaction to his right scapula. And now he's going to be shut down for four weeks. And listen, you hear the... the four weeks, people, he's not coming back May 1st, okay? Now, shutdown means not only is he not pitching in, you know, spring training games, or in this case, it would be minor league games to prepare himself for it. He's not throwing at all. That means once he's cleared to go, once he's ready to go, He's going to have to go back through a spring training process, get on a throwing program, uh, get in some rehab starts at one of the Mets minor league facilities somewhere. So you're, you're probably more realistically looking at somewhere in the range of June 10th to June 15th, somewhere like that, 
before you see what you hope is still the best pitcher in baseball. And, you know, you're hoping that you were over these injury problems with Jacob deGrom. You were hoping that what happened last year was going to be a thing of the past. Now, last year, he gets off to an amazing start in his season, even for the standards that he had already set. He was pitching at a Hall of Fame pace through 15 starts at a level that you could probably only do in MLB, the show, the video game, if you put everything on easy. I mean, he's got a whip at about half uh, of, of one. He's got an ERA barely above one, had about 150 strikeouts in only 92 innings. But every couple of starts... He was leaving early. Every couple of starts, there was some kind of issue that the Mets never could figure out. And from July on, we never saw this guy. We never saw what many, including myself, still perceived to be the best pitcher in baseball. And, you know, the the reasoning behind this, why he's dealt with these injuries... It's kind of obvious. I mean, you look at the way he's pitched last year during that 15-start span. There was a good chunk of that where he was essentially pitching like he was a reliever out there. He was just going out there, grabbing the ball, and chucking it rather than pitching. And look no further than when you look at his pitch usage and miles per hour on his fastball. You know, back, what was it, five years ago, he was looked at as a very good pitcher in this sport. Then come 2017, 18, and 19, where he just essentially exploded, became a rock star for this team, was the Cy Young Award winner twice in that three-year span and just put up unbelievably filthy numbers that we had not seen from a, a Mets pitcher in a long time. The kind of performances that you would have hoped you would have gotten from Matt Harvey after his the way his career started or from Noah Syndergaard with the how promising he was when he first came up. But Jacob DeGrom was always... The guy kind of in the background where he pitched well, but, you know, wasn't getting the the adulation, wasn't getting the attention from the media because he didn't have some goofy nickname, didn't have, you know, the big personality. He just went out there and pitched. And he was the last guy that you looked at and said, oh, he cares about the radar gun. He cares about um, seeing the flames popping up around the miles per hour on the scoreboard at City Field. Well, that's somewhere along the line that's changed, especially when you look at how for the last six years, each year, his fastball velocity has gone up almost a mile per hour each year. 2016, it was at 93.4. Then in 2017, he jumped up to 95.2. Made another jump in 2018 to 96. 
The next year, 96.9, then jumped up almost two full miles per hour in the pandemic shortened season to 98.6. And then last year when he pitched, he was averaging 99.3 miles an hour and throwing his fastball at a career high 93.4%. He was just pitching at, you know, an unhealthy, unsustainable level for the human arm. Especially when you look at how the usage rate changed for his other pitches. You know, he was throwing his slider 91 miles an hour and 33% of the time. So he was essentially a two-pitch pitcher for the better part of, you know, two to three months there. Completely scrapped his curveball and his changeup, which he had been averaging 16% of the time over the course of his career. Last year, he only threw it 8% of the time. And the human body is just not built to pitch like that. You know, if he's going to do that like, you know, the way Edwin Diaz does it or Roldis Chapman or Craig Kimbrell, where they're coming out there, they're only expected to throw, oh, say, uh, 14 uh, to 15 pitches uh, over the course of an inning. Yeah, you can light it up. You can give it your all for those 14 to 15 pitches. But not when you're expected to go out there and go seven to eight innings once every five days, throw 100 pitches. And you, yeah, he's a tall guy, but he's not exactly jacked. He's, what, about 180 pounds? At some point, that was going to take its toll. At some point, it, you know, the, the human body was going to look to him and be like, no, nah, you can't do it. You can't physically hold up and do this. And you know, it's, it stinks. You feel, even as a non-Met fan, I feel for Met fans because this is their guy. Now, that they treat the day that he pitches as it's a holiday once every, oh, four or five days. Now, it's Jake Day. It's the Grom Day, the DeGrominator. I've heard that from Met fans. And now you're not going to get to see that until June. And you wanted positivity coming into this year. As I said, new ownership that spent spent wisely uh, that didn't just go out there and buy four players for $45 million apiece. I mean, you did spend a big chunk of change on Max Scherzer. But the other moves were, you know, middle-of-the-pack quality kind of moves. You know, the trade for Basson and the, and the aforementioned signings before. You bring in a new manager who, while I've never been the biggest fan of Buck Showalter in the world, there was positivity. There was a lot of optimism heading into this. And now with DeGrom going to be gone for likely two months, and and you hope that's it. You hope that you're seeing him by June 10th. Now you you hear reports of Max Scherzer possibly not being available to pitch on opening day um, because of a hamstring tightness. 
possibly if either being someone like uh, Tyler McGill or even going with the opener gimmick. Not the kind of uh, way you wanted to start 2022 if you're a Met fan. You, you didn't want it to be the same old Mets. You wanted a f- breath of fresh air. You wanted excitement. You looked at it and said, we have quite possibly the two best pitchers in baseball on our team starting games one and two for us. And now you could be, you're going to be definitely without one of them, but could be without both through this first time in the rotation. And what stinks about it is it's not like you're in some you know, dog pit, some garbage pile of a division. Yeah, we expect the Nationals to stink. But the Braves, you know, all they did was replace Freddie Freeman with Matt Olson. They're going to be getting, you know, Ronald Acuna back at some point here, possibly even Mike Soroka as well. The Phillies, they still got Girardi as their manager, still got uh, Bryce Harper there. And the Marlins' young pitching is no joke. So this is not exactly the division that you want to get off to a slow start in. Hell, it's not exactly the league you want to get off to a slow start in, especially when you look out west and see uh, the Giants and Dodgers. You see the Padres continuing uh, to uh, reload. And then you never know what to expect from the National League Central. You wanted it to be a much better start to 2022 for the Mets, while instead it kind of feels like the same old um, nonsense that you're used to. A lot left I want to get to for the next, oh, about 40, 45 minutes or so here. Give you some thoughts on the NBA, an MVP race that's going to come right down to the very end, uh, mix in some thoughts about the Lakers, the Nets, uh, fit in some Final Four thoughts as well, as well as I, I really have to get on someone with the Yankees. You know, I was absolutely aggravated with some comments I saw the other day, so I'll get to those in a little bit. But a lot to get to today. Glad you could join me. Please sit back, relax, help put your feet up if you feel like it. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 
1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3 on this Feel Good Monday with the NCAA Tournament Finals coming up tonight. A finals that will be between the Kansas Jayhawks and the North Carolina Tar Heels, which thank you very much, Jayhawks. Thank you very much for taking care of Villanova. And listen. It, to be fair, Villanova, you could tell, was slightly hindered at the start without uh, Justin Moore. You, know, the, you were going to be asking guys to step out of their con- comfort zone to grow up a little bit quicker than uh, you're used to seeing and uh, step into roles that they're not particularly used to. Now, it happens. But also, when you turn over the basketball four times in the first, what, about four minutes of the game, Villanova's been the best at protecting the basketball in the country this season. Averages less than 10 turnovers a game. And while in total they only had nine for the game, what matters is when they happen, not how they happen. You know, if it was nine spread across 40 minutes, that's one thing. But the fact that it was nine and you had four within the first couple minutes of the game and you were battling back all night long, you were constantly looking up at at the scoreboard at double-digit deficit, being without your second leading score, it was too much to ask for. And you know, in the second game between uh, Duke and North Carolina, you had a back-and-forth war between these two squads. You had uh, you know, every, every time you thought you know, Duke was going to seize control of this, that they were going to continue on this Cinderella pace, North Carolina just was insanely hot from the field in the final five minutes of that game and made the plays that needed to be made in the big moments. And where they got very lucky, and I know it's been a very controversial uh, thought, was whether that was a shooting foul or that was a foul on the floor in uh, the final couple of seconds. Remember, North Carolina had a three-point lead. And there was a foul committed just before the shot is thrown up. And the refs ruled that it was on the floor, not a uh, a shooting foul. So Duke didn't get the and one uh, opportunity and just was never able to 
really uh, seize back control this moment. I, the thing that more annoys me with Duke is the fact that I get that their kids were heartbroken. They were sad. They wanted a better end for their coach. But, you know, stand there and shake the other team's hand. You would have been looking uh, for them to shake your hand had you uh, won this game. Now, stand there, show the respect that your coach showed the opposition rather than walking off as a bunch of sore sports, as a bunch of losers. But I know there's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of sadness for the Dukies, for uh, the, the Blue Devil fan base. And it's because you're losing a legend. You lose, you, you know, it was going to be sad no matter what with him walking away with his, this chapter in his career coming to an end. Especially when you see the greatness that he put on there for 42 years. I mean, for 42 years, he had a winning percentage of 78%. In the 42 years prior to Coach K, they were about 66%. You know, kind of a middle-of-the-pack um, program. In 42 years, he made the, the NCAA tournament 36 times. Prior to Coach K, they only made it eight. He had 101 tournament wins in 42 years. The program had only 15 in the 42 prior to Coach K. And he's won five national championships in 42 years. And it goes without saying how many titles they had prior to him. Now, he's he's had a phenomenal career with what he did at Duke. Made a name for himself originally at Army. And it's because of what he did there that led... uh, Team USA basketball to picking him as their head coach for a decade and leading to uh, three gold medal wins. He's had a an absolutely remarkable career, remarkable run uh, in uh, the the basketball world. Now I, I know their fans wish it would have ended on better ter- terms, but. While you're sad today, there's going to be a day where you look back and you smile and you're happy about what you got from Coach K all these years. Now, speaking of retirements, this kind of came out of the blue last week, but we probably should not be surprised about it. And that was the announcement of uh, Bruce Arians retiring as head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, he will step away and move into a front office role with uh, the Bucks. And let's face it, they can play nice all they want. They can put out whatever press releases that they want. They, they could say that, uh, that this has uh, been uh, something that he started thinking about in the last couple of weeks. Tom Brady forced Bruce Arians out. This was pretty much a situation where when Tom announced he was coming back after his, what, 
40-day retirement, he told the franchise, either he's out or I want to be traded. I'm, I'm either playing here without him as my head coach or I'm going to San Francisco to play for the 49ers. And the pressure clearly was put on Bruce Aarons. And this relationship had clearly fallen apart, especially when you hear about all these reports of how they differed in philosophy, differed in the game plan this year when Brady and Byron Leftwich would put together a game plan and Bruce Arians would come in there and essentially put the red pen to it and change up everything that they had been working on. Tom grew frustrated. And they played nice for a year. That got them a championship. But we've seen time and time again in the world of sports why we don't have many dynasties anymore. Because teams tend to have differing philosophies. There tends to be egos and a lot of butting heads when it comes to trying to repeat. So now Bruce Arian steps away. Todd Bowles will take over as the head coach, which I I was kind of happy to see because even though Todd lacks all forms of personality, he's still a great person. He has been a very good coordinator in this league for a long time. And he was dealt a bad hand when he was the head coach of the Jets. The Jets roster, after that first year, was not built for success. You know, they, they tore it down on once the locker room fell apart. Once that argument, whatever happened there between Brandon Marshall and Sheldon Richardson, that essentially tore that team apart in 2016 and tore them apart in a way that they were never able to recover from, led to Muhammad Wilkerson becoming the laziest $85 million paid player in Jets history. Now, Todd Bowles stood no chance. So I'm glad to see that he's getting another crack at it and getting a crack at it with a team that is built for success. Now, You look at the division is pretty much in their hands, but they're going to have to go through two, you know, warriors to get through it. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, even though he lost Devontae Adams um, to the Raiders, you expect them to be in the mix uh, when it comes to um, the team to be in the NFC. And, you know, the Rams continuing to show that even with winning a Super Bowl, that um, Sean McVay and uh, Lesney's philosophy of let's go all in all the time does not change. I mean, you look at it, this offseason, they lose a Hall of Fame linebacker in Von Miller to the Buffalo Bills. And what did they do? You're thinking oh, they don't have room to make upgrades. They don't have room to make changes to this roster. All they do is go out and sign one of the best linebackers, a Hall of Fame linebacker in his own right, in Bobby Wagner, give him $50 million, and 
This guy's been one of the best linebackers in the sport for the last decade. Eight consecutive Pro Bowl appearances, been an All-Pro in five of the last six years. And that there is no chill there in uh, Southern California. So it, it's still going to be, it'll be a cakewalk for the Bucks as long as they're healthy in the NFC South. But it's still going to be somewhat difficult for them to navigate the NFC. Now, them and the Bills will uh, be happy that there has been a little bit of a change when it comes to uh the uh, overtime rules for the postseason. Now both teams will be guaranteed the football, even if there's a touchdown scored on the first drive. Now, prior to this, it was just a a touchdown or a safety um, on the first drive and the, the game is over. And under that format, the team that won the coin toss is 10-2 and two since uh, uh, 2010. It, on paper, this looks a little bit more fair. On paper, it, it should make people a little bit happier. But we know how society is. Everyone is always looking for a reason to complain about something. All right, going to take another break here, come back on the other side, turn my attention to the NBA as the MVP race is heating up and, you know, look at the concern of my Brooklyn Nets. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon. Now, last month I was talking a lot about MVP chances across the NBA. It seemed like every week I was promoting 
someone else's MVP chances, whether it be, you know, Nikola Jokic, uh, John Morant, Giannis, Joel Embiid, uh, threw it in there, um, DeMar DeRozan, although the the Bulls uh, did slip a, a, a slight bit in the standings. Now, every week was taking a, a, a look at uh, different guys. Now, one thing that has uh, come up, and I think this kind of hurts Ja Morant's chances at the MVP award, even with how fantastic he's been uh, this year, is A, he's missed a lot of time. I mean, missing 25% of it, your games is something that the writers are going and voters out there are going to hold against you. They're going to look at that and say that, oh, it's too much time, especially with other great candidates. Plus, it's not like the Grizzlies have fallen apart without him. They seem to strive under the and thrive under this next man up philosophy. They won eight in a row since Jaw's recent injury. And this season without him, remember he, he missed about a month uh, early in the year. They're 20 and two without Ja Morant. So that is going to be something that hinders his MVP prospects um, um, somewhat. Now for the Grizzlies and the fa- and their fans, they don't give a damn about that. What they care about is that, this guy is going to be healthy and ready to go when the postseason starts in about 10 days. He's been out. Uh, the last uh, update we've heard about him um, was on March 25th, said he was going to be out another two weeks. Well, another two weeks is this coming Wednesday. So we'll see what uh, the diagnosis is for him. Uh, no, me personally, I've always been of the mindset that if he is healthy, if someone is healthy and physically ready to go, and you're assured that there's nothing that can be done that will create some kind of setback, I want them back before the postseason. I want them. I don't want them coming parachuting in before the postseason and after weeks of not playing. I want him to break off some of the rust and get in a game some point this weekend. I think everybody across the league is playing on Sunday. So hopefully by then you can get him back because with the play-in tournament, the first round of the NBA playoffs does not start until like a a week from Friday, a week from Saturday. Uh, I want, if if I'm a Grizzlies fan, if, if I'm a player on that team, first off, you want him 100%. You want him healthy. But the, secondly, I want him to um, be back on that court and, you know, shake off some of the rust before the uh, postseason. Because like I've said before, this these are living, breathing human beings. This is not some video game where we just we act like it's so simple, so easy when someone's coming back from an injury. And a lot of the time, it's more complicated than that. 
And you look at this MVP race right now. Right now, it's, it's a four-horse race. Now, the, like, like I said, uh, DeMar DeRozan um, has seemingly kind of fallen out of it a bit. So right now, if I'm looking at this race, it's Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, and Luka Doncic. Even though Luka got off to a slow start this year, he's been red hot, and the Mavericks are 17-7 and since they traded away Kristaps Porzingis. Now, Joel Embiid has been kind of the favorite in this race for most of the season and did nothing to deflect from that when yesterday he put up 44 points and 17 rebounds, was just an absolute monster. And after the game, I'm surprised. You know, Joel Embiid's got a personality that you really like. He he comes off as a fun-loving, sometimes aloof, carefree kind of guy, but will say some things... You know, that, you know, are interesting at times. But this was one of those times where you're looking at Joel Embiid and you're wondering, you know, why are you complaining? Why are you getting so upset? Because after the game, he's asked about the MVP award and he said, quote, if it doesn't, I don't know what I have to do. I feel like they hate me. I feel the standard for guys in Philly or for me is different than everyone else. Did they use a different standard for, you know, Barkley, Moses Malone, you know, any Allen Iverson, any of the greats before you? No, no. They, you know, that, and your last concern right now should be about the MVP award. As great as, You've played your your two concerns should be a winning a championship because this team this organization has done everything to cater toward building the team around you and getting you of uh, that title in what is your now sixth season in the league. I'm not going to count those first two because he was out with injury, and they got rid of what was thought to be a giant pain in the ass for this organization in Ben Simmons. Add on uh, top of that, the other thing you should be concerned about. In trading away Ben Simmons, you brought in James Harden, who after a quick start with the 76ers, has played like crap for the last 13 games. Only shooting 36% from the field, is shooting about 30% from behind the three-point arc. Now, he has not been the James Harden you would expect him. What a surprise. You know, James Harden forced his way out of a situation and has not been able to truly fit in, truly be the 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 piece that Philadelphia thought. He was going to be. Oh, it's such a shame. It's so heartbreaking, isn't it? Hmm. Now, now Giannis, I mean, Embiid says that he thinks the standard is different for him. No, it's just that you have a lot of competition as well. Now, I mentioned uh, Luca before. He's 
uh, put up 32 in his last five games and the Mavericks have been hot. Nikola Jokic has been the model of consistency this season. He's uh, He's got to, when it comes to rebounds and assists, and he's put up 30 in five of the last, last seven games. And remember, he's doing it mostly without uh, Jamal Murray. He hasn't had him this year. Has barely had Michael Porter Jr. While you have had relatively a healthy team, albeit uh, Ben Simmons was MIA for the first half of the year, and you're getting uh, an out-of-shape James Harden. And then you have to also take into account the guy who some would consider right now is the best player in the league in Giannis Antetokounmpo, who on the season is putting up 30 and, and 11, and upped his game in March by putting up 33 and, tw- and 13. He's including uh, the 44 piece he put up against my Brooklyn Nets last Thursday night in the Barclays Center. Who, let me get to the Nets right now. You know, I am very concerned going into this postseason when it comes to the Nets because. You know, what we all thought all along for this last month finally uh, came true over the weekend where the Nets were eliminated from a top six seed possibility and they're going to be in this play-in tournament. It's only a matter of where they're going to be spotted in the play-in tournament between but 7 and 10. And in all likelihood, without things are shaping out right now, they're going to have to win two games to get into the postseason, all of them on the road, because they lose out on a lot of these tiebreakers. You know, it's one thing that they lost to the Bucks on Thursday night at Barclays Center because the Bucks are a championship-level team. Even with uh, you know Chris Middleton getting ejected in the second half, which I thought eh, that wasn't that wasn't the worst thing in the world that I've ever seen. I thought the the refs were being a little bit too cautious there with uh, that flagrant two that they threw on him for the hit uh, against uh, Brown. But you no, know, the Nets shot themselves in the foot. All throughout that game. They were out-rebounded left and right by the Bucs. And that, that led to a lot of second-chance opportunities. A, allowed the Bucs to just dominate the paint. I mean, you look at the Nets sh- um, put up 97 shots in that game. The Bucs only had 89. And the Bucs were able to come back and win this game because a lot of those 89 shots were second-chance opportunities. A lot of those were because they were dominating inside, getting those those uh, rebounds that the Nets uh, weren't getting and were outwilling the Nets even when losing their second-best player. But what really bothered me about what I've seen with the Nets in the last week is the win on Tuesday night against the Pistons and then the loss on Saturday against uh, the Hawks. 
I mean, we know the Nets are not the best defensive team in the world by any stretch of the imagination. But you allow the Pistons to come into Barclays Center and put up 123 points. I and mean, a team that's got nothing to play for. A team that's going to be in the lottery once again. And you, you let them hang around, let them, you know, score at will against you, even have a, a lead at halftime. And pile that on top of Saturday night's loss to the Atlanta Hawks, who the Hawks, you went into that tied. Now they have an advantage for you over you when it comes to play-in tournament seating. I mean, you get a double nickel from Kevin Durant, who was just a beast all night, but nothing from anyone else. And I'm including Kyrie Irving in this because while Kyrie scored 31, it took him 32 shots to get there. I mean, Kyrie Irving on a, on a night where Durant is just unconscionable from the court, from the field, excuse me, should not be sh- shooting more times than Kevin Durant is. But hey, that 31 you got from Kyrie is a lot more than you got from most of the rest of them. I mean, Patty Mills was totally useless in that game. You're seeing guys in and out of the lineup uh, on a game-by-game basis, whether it be by injury or they fall out of favor quickly with Steve Nash. And you look at you look at this team, they're kind of a mess right now. Because you don't know, I can we stop talking about is Ben Simmons going to come back? Is he going to play at, at all? I mean, until Ben Simmons actually steps on the court, I don't want to hear his name associated with this franchise. He's a myth. He's a rumor. He doesn't exist as far as I am concerned and the rest of Brooklyn Nets Nation is concerned until he actually suits up and plays for this team. But hey, at least they're going to have a shot at the postseason. At least they're going to get a crack at things in making the play-in tournament. That's a lot more than you could say about the other team that was thought of as the favorite to win the NBA Finals coming into this year. Remember, everybody just thought, oh, it's a fate of complete. We're going to get Nets-Lakers. Well, look at where we sit today. The Nets are in the play-in tournament, and as of right now, the Lakers aren't even going to make that. They have been that goddamn awful this year. They have now lost six in a row and have fallen out of the play-in tournament spot. They've fallen behind the Spurs in the play-in tournament. A Spurs team that probably doesn't even want to make the play-in. Their organization probably would like to get that lottery uh, draft pick and continue a rebuilding process that they've been on since Kawhi and the big three left. You could say a lot of it is because of, oh, injuries to AD, injuries to uh, LeBron James. No, it's because this team never fit together. It's because Russell Westbrook can't play on the court at the same time as LeBron James. It's because of the fact that Anthony Davis, prior to about three days ago, had not been seen in over a month and a half. And 
Listen, he's the last one that should be out there making excuses uh, right now, talking about, oh, what could have been if we had everyone healthy, if LeBron was healthy, if Kendrick Nunn uh, was healthy. We put this team together, look good on paper. Well, Anthony, that's why they play the game. These games are not played on paper. They're not played on spreadsheets. They're played with real, living, breathing human beings. And you're as big of, the, of part of the problem as anyone else. Because while you're on the court, we all acknowledge you as one of the top five players in the sport talent-wise. Your worst ability is your availability. When you are, if we want to count THT as uh, being a relevant player on this team, when it comes to the relevant players on this team, when you're the second youngest player on this team, but you're the one that is getting injured the most, whether it be fluky and landing on someone else's foot and sprint, rolling an ankle or straining a hamstring, when every time you turn around and you see Anthony Davis is coming up with some kind of leg injury, that's a problem. This was supposed to be the year where LeBron starts to, I don't, I will never say that this man's going to fall off a cliff because he's been a, a model of excellence and it, you just marvel at how great he's been. But this was supposed to be the year that LeBron started to take a step back where he wasn't competing for the scoring title, where he wasn't you know, leading the league in minutes uh, every other month. And this was supposed to be your Lakers team. And because of that, you forced LeBron James to do things that he probably isn't physically capable of doing anymore. Especially, you look at it, this team is 4-16 and 16 since the All-Star break. And in those four wins, LeBron James is averaging 45 points a game. Even has a couple of 50-point games in there. So it has taken superhuman strengths and physical wear and tear on LeBron James' body in year 19 just to win four games in a 20-game span. I Imagine if he didn't average 45 in those games how bad the Lakers would be and at this point you you kind of hope that they don't make the play in because a maybe it will lead to a full teardown there and lead to a lot of drama and chaos maybe LeBron forces his way out and b no even if they were to say make the play in and find their way into the eighth seed they would just get smoked in the first round. And that's not something I want to see put on LeBron James's legacy. That's not something I want to see the likes of the Skip Baylesses of the world to poke and make fun of this all-time great when clearly everything that's gone on th there this year is anything but his fault. Gonna take another break here, come back on the other side, finish things up with some thoughts on the Yankees, because someone with the Yankees 
franchise, quite frankly, has me aggravated right now. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. So, I see that my troll is watching uh, the podcast. Been a while since we've heard from you, man. Remember, I told you before, just keep things respectful, and you're always welcome to comment, give thoughts and opinions on anything you hear me say on here, just like everybody else. It's when you tick me off and act like a disrespectful prick. That's when I uh, come firing at you and have to put you in timeout. Now, with the season coming up in about three days, baseball season that is, you're still seeing moves going down. You're still seeing teams trying to shape their rosters. They'll couple of trades went down over the weekend. One with uh, the Dodgers and the White Sox. The Dodgers sending A.J. Pollock to the the White Sox for Craig Kimbrell. And it works out for both teams because Pollock had been kind of expendable with uh, the Dodgers with the way that their lineup is shaped now. After you add Freddie Freeman, you you push Max Muncy to the DH spot. You've got to play Gavin Lux, so you couldn't put Muncy back at second base. And with Corey Seager leaving, uh, that moves Trey Turner from the outfield to shortstop. So there was kind of becoming a logjam of players there. And with Pollock having the most, I guess, easy-to-match-up contract of the players on that team. He was the one that became expendable. I mean, he's coming off a very good year, had 21 homers, 69 RBIs, but you trade him for a piece that is useful, 
a piece that I know he performed awful with the White Sox last year, but Craig Kimball fills a need on this team. Craig Kimball is someone that you look at and while he hasn't he was not great with the White Sox. He was great with the Cubs prior to the trade deadline. Remember, he was asked to do something he has not done in a long time. And that's go from being a closer back to a setup man. And we see it all the time with these with these relievers. For some reason, when you get into that closer's mindset, if you're doing anything but closing, you become a shell of yourself. I mean, Anytime the Yankees put a role this Chapman in a tie game on the road in extra innings or a non-save situation, he's a total mess. And, you know, I was a little bit surprised that the White Sox picked up his $16 million option with the way he performed in the second half of last year. But... Now, he is somebody that has closed out big games in the past. Now, his best run was with the Atlanta Braves uh, about a decade ago, but had good year with San Diego, had his moments with the Boston Red Sox. And now you hope with him taking over as the Dodgers closer after they lost Kenley Jansen to the uh, Braves, Now Dodger fans are going to be hoping that Kimbrell is uh, that missing piece in the back of their bullpen to get them back to the fall classic. Now, their division rival, the San Diego Padres, I I can't quite figure this franchise out because on one end, you're happy when your team is never content. They're never just satisfied with being who they are and are are looking at putting the best roster possible on the field. But at some point, you you look at the Padres and you wonder, when is enough enough? Because it seems like every five minutes, they're making a trade. They're making some kind of move. Late last month, they traded with the Yankees to get Luke Voigt. Now, they make... Uh, a trade with the A's and get Sean Manaya for two minor leaguers. And what was weird about this trade yesterday is it comes hours before they were set to play the A's in a spring training game, a game that going into it, Sean Manaya was set to start for the A's a mere five hours later, he's starting for the San Diego Padres. He's, he's probably looking at himself wearing uh, that mustard colored uniform and thinking, Wow, this is a change in just a mere couple of hours here. And Manaya helps any rotation. He's not an ace by any means, but he's a very good pitcher. He's had some shoulder injuries the last couple of years, but last year he seemed to finally rebound from that, put together a full 32-start season, and give uh, the A's a lot of quality, a lot of respectable work. The only problem now is he comes to a Padres team that I know they say you can never have too much starting pitching, 
but they have seven guys for five spots. And while some of these guys have not been the models of, of health, Hugh Darvis has dealt with Tommy John, uh, Mike Clevenger's coming off Tommy John surgery. We haven't seen him since the 2020 season, or excuse me, yeah, the 2020 season. Uh, and you've got Nick Martinez, you've got Chris Paddock, who's kind of fallen off of uh, you know, the pedestal he was at with this franchise at one time. It puts them in position to look for trade partners, look to potentially trade uh, guys. But you just wonder, you look at the Padres and you wonder with all this shifting, with all this um, moving around pieces and not having a consistent roster for any significant amount of time, does that mix, does that mess with the chemistry? Does that mess with uh, the camaraderie of this team when they're looking around and seeing a new player on this team every five minutes and seemingly losing uh, someone that they thought was their friend, their teammate every other day? Now, I want to close up with some thoughts about the Yankees here because I will be at the Yankees home opener on Thursday afternoon. What we hope is Thursday afternoon. I mean, please, can can the weather stay the hell away from Yankee Stadium? I So many times I've had to deal with this over the years where I'm on the way to uh, the Yankees game for their home opener. And all of a sudden it, it either gets rained out or even worse, 2018 got snowed out when they could have just pushed the game back about two to three hours and played under bright sunshine. But a couple of things with the Yankees. One, I love the fact that they're going to have Derek Jeter night on September 9th, honoring his Hall of Fame induction. You know, this comes, his return to the Yankees comes a little bit quicker than you would have thought, but we saw the fallout with uh, the Marlins, and you figured that sooner rather than later, El Capitan would make an appearance, would have some kind of moment at Yankee Stadium to acknowledge that. But the real thing I want to talk about here with the Yankees is Brian Cashman. Because Brian Cashman made some comments last week that were posted in an article on The Athletic that quite frankly, bothered the living hell out of me. As we know, the Yankees have not won a World Series since 2009. It's a drought that a lot of Yankee fans of this generation are not used to, because I'll be the first one to admit it. We are spoiled. We were spoiled by that late 90s team. If you were like myself eight years old, anywhere between the age of eight and 14 during that time period, you're someone that truly did not understand sports, did not realize that the Yankees in years prior to that had been awful, were kind of a mess since their championship, since their last title prior to that in 78. And you thought that, 
oh, this is just going to happen every year. This is just the norm. When the fact that there has not been a team to repeat since, you all we've seen is circumstances like the Red Sox winning two in a three-year span and three in a seven-year span. Um, it's hard to win these things. It, it with how players travel around, with how the money is more available with some of these teams these days. It's harder to repeat. It's harder to have a dynasty in baseball than it is or has been at any point in the history of this sport. But Brian Cashman is still out there making comments about the 2017 Houston Astros when he said, quote, the only thing that stopped us was something that was so illegal and, and horrific. So I get offended when I start hearing um, we haven't been to the World Series since 09 because I'm like, well, I think we did it the right way. Pulled it down, brought it back up, drafted well, traded well, developed well, signed well. The only thing that derailed us was a cheating circumstance threw us off. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's a true statement as it could be. We had a World Series team and you either get it done or you don't when people talk about they haven't been to a World Series. Listen, like most Yankee fans out there, I'm annoyed about what happened in 2017. I'm more annoyed that Rob Manfred didn't come down harder on that organization and the, the only true person that has been punished out of all of this was Jeff Lunau. And he was a, an unlikable human being as it, as it was. So, no, you really don't have any sympathy for him whatsoever. But, you know, you... you my big problem with 2017 was the fact that they didn't get the title taken away and there was no player suspended. But at some point, we have to move on. At some point, we have to stop the whining and complaining because let's look at 2017. Yeah, the home team won every game in that series and the Yankees were dominant at home. But on the road, while... The Astros were doing whatever it was they were doing, banging on trash cans, stealing signs, whatever. They still only allowed three runs to the Yankees that entire series. Their pitching staff shut the Yankees down in those four games at Minute Maid Ballpark. And then let's take into account what's happened since then. 2018. You lose in four games to the Boston Red Sox. In 2019, you lose in six games to the Astros in the ALCS. Who knows what Altuve was wearing under his shirt, but Aroldis Chapman still threw a fat one down the middle that even a blindfolded Stevie Wonder probably could have hit out of the ballpark. In 2020, 
you lost to the Rays in five games and only scored one run in a game that Garrett Cole was magnificent pitching on three days rest for the first time in his career. And then last year, you lose in the wild card game when Garrett Cole couldn't make it through three innings and your offense only was able to drive across two runs. So what's the excuse there? What? You can't blame the Astros for 2018, 19, 20, or 21. At what point do we stop leaning on that, stop looking at that as our crutch, stop saying that's the reason why, and rather look at it and, and say, how do we improve things here? Because you know, there are Yankee fans still out there that complain about Moves that the Yankees either have or haven't made this offseason. And say, oh, they're being cheap. You can't say they're being cheap. They have the third highest payroll in the sport. They, they've gone above two thresholds of the luxury tax threshold. So I don't know how anyone in their right mind could argue this franchise is being cheap in any way. Brian Cashman is pulling these comments out just as a cover, as an excuse for some of his stupid moves, for some of his lack of common sense here in the in the last, all oh, about 10 years. Because you look at some of the things he's done. Gave Aaron Hicks seven years for $10 million a year. You've gotten little to no returns out of that. Aaron Hicks barely played last year and is in and out of the lineup in years prior to that. Has had one good season for this team. That was 2018. And since then, it's done nothing but get hurt. He gave Luis Severino a four-year contract extension at the end of spring training in 2019. And you've Barely gotten 10 starts out of him. And while I'm very high on Luis Severino, that's a contract that's come back to bite you. You've had plenty of opportunities to fill the hole that is left field the last couple of years. Michael Brantley was available twice in the last three years. You decided to continue to stick with Brett Gardner. And look what happened. He was one of the worst players in the sport each of the last two seasons. And let's go back even further than that. I will. This is one I will take to my grave with me. I will never understand this. Why they felt the need to make Eduardo Nunez ex- unavailable in a trade for Cliff Lee. Because in 2010, this team coming off of a championship had a chance to repeat Still had Mariano Rivera in his prime. Still had Derek Jeter, Alex Rodriguez, and others who, while older, were still playing at a relatively quality to high level. You could have made a move that would have put you over the top and really locked in, repeating as champions for the first time since uh, 2000. And instead, no, Eduardo Nunez, we got to protect him at 
at all costs. Well, you saw how valuable prospects were when at the end of the year, they were so willing to give up Jesus Montero for Michael Pineda. And he was a mess for most of his time here. Hell, you were willing to trade prospects and get Sonny Gray, and he was a mental mess as well. So Brian Cashman is using these comments here to kind of just cover up for his own misgivings, his own mistakes of the past. The reason why the Yankees haven't won a title since 2009 it's not because of the Astros, just because of the Astros signed stealing in 2017. Because remember, that was the ALCS. That wasn't the World Series. You still had to get through a Dodgers team that some thought might have been the best team in baseball that year. And who knows what would happen if uh, that young bunch of kids got to the fall classic. Because remember, this Severino was not good in that postseason. And you had a rotation that lacked a true ace. But you've had plenty of opportunities, have spent plenty of money since then, and have one trip to the ALCS since 2017 to look back on. As I said, I'm pissed off. I'm annoyed. I'm upset that the Astros weren't punished more so than they were. But at some point, the excuse-making has got to end. At some point, we have to move on from 2017, especially when you consider there's all these reports out there about some kind of letter out there dealing with the 2015 Yankees when it came to that whole Apple Watch situation with them and the Red Sox and the Yankees using the bullpen phone incorrectly, something that the Yankees have been fighting with the courts to make sure that letter is not released. But at some point in the next couple of weeks, it's going to be released. And the fact that Randy Levine is fighting tooth and nail for it not to be released clearly shows there's something damning on there. So let's stop with the crying about 2017. Because for all we know, in the next couple of weeks, something could come out. Some bombshell could drop that makes Cashman and the Yankees organization look like absolute fools. Makes every Yankee fan that has cried and complained saying we got robbed in 2017 look like fools. And then who's going to be the ones with egg on their face then? Who's going to be the ones that are out there saying, we got robbed, we got cheated, if the Yankees, as it turns out, did something mischievous and did something against the rules? And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, April 4th, 2022. I want to thank everyone for listening this week including my troll. Hope you all have a great week. Hope you all um, stay safe, stay healthy. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace.
to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.